Having risen to the status of international newspaper sensation, the Dolby Spook, or Jeff the Talking Mongoose to those that knew him, was now poised to meet some of the world's most famous psychical researchers. Unfortunately, Jeff was as shy amongst company as he was talkative to the Irvings. Yet still, the story of Jeff persisted, until eventually, his name ended up associated with a debate that took place in the highest office in the land. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome back to Dark Histories, Season 7, Episode 24, Part 2 of the story on Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Before we start, I just want to give a quick shout out to Sasha and Amato, who are hopefully doing a Ben, and also to say that I've received quite a few uh, Christmas campfire stories from everybody. Um, but this is probably going to be the last or second to last shout out I'm going to give. So if you are thinking about entering your story for this year's Christmas campfire, I probably would do it over the next couple of weeks sometime. But anyway, I'll give one more shout out because we've got one more episode left of this season. So I, I will give a heads up, uh, obviously, next episode uh, about that. But yeah, if you're thinking about getting your, your submission in for this year's Christmas campfire, I would probably think about doing it sometime over the next couple of weeks. Anyway, with that said, where are we? We are up to Harry Price's visit. We've seen, we've met Jeff. Uh, Jeff has made himself known that he doesn't want to be called Jack. He'd much rather be called Jeff. And he's also let it be known that he is in fact a mongoose. And I believe we ended with uh, Dennis's uh, sort of preliminary investigation for Price uh, to go and check out Jeff and see what it was all about. Let's crack on to part two and the conclusion of Jeff the Talking Mongoose. After Harold Dennis's inconclusive visits to Dawlish Cashin, Harry Price arrived on the Isle of Man on the evening of Tuesday, July the 30th, 1935, in an attempt to meet Jeff for himself. He'd travelled to the island alongside his friend, writer, broadcaster, historian and fellow psychical investigator, Richard Lambert. Lambert had been head of the BBC's adult education department since 1927, as well as editor of The Listener magazine, a BBC-funded weekly that published transcripts of long-form talks from radio broadcasts. Lambert had a long-held interest in psychical research and the supernormal, though it had remained a purely hobbyist venture. In the run-up to their trip, Harry Price had been communicating with James Irving, both to plan the visit and to try and relax Jeff, who for some time had taken a dislike towards Price and his reputation as something of a debunker and sceptic. Unfortunately, Jeff's dislike had seemingly manifested in him running away prior to Price's visit, and James had had to inform the already doubting researcher that Jeff had disappeared on the very day that Price had written to him to confirm his arrival date on the Isle of Man. James wasn't too concerned, though, and neither, it seems, was Price, who wanted to take advantage of the warm summer weather and made the journey all the same, sure that Jeff would come back sometime soon, despite his absence being over a month already. James met Price and Lambert from the boat dock on the eastern city of Douglas at 6.45pm and James escorted them to the village of Glen May where they checked into the waterfall inn, just as Dennis had done before. James had invited the two men to stay up at the farm but with no real room to accommodate them both, they politely declined the offer and opted instead for the comfort of the small inn. Price had bought a camera as a gift for Voiray, which James had requested. At £3, it had not been a cheap gift but Price hoped that it may serve a second purpose, other than an introduction fee for Jeff, 
and that Voiray could hopefully use it to capture an image of the elusive mongoose. That night, the three men dined together at the inn and James walked Price and Lambert through the history of Jeff's presence on the farm. For over two hours, he detailed all of Jeff's little foibles and mannerisms, listing endless conversations that had taken place on the farm right up until he had last seen Jeff almost five weeks earlier. After dinner, James escorted the men up to the farm in order for them to have a quick look around and make a preliminary judgement of the scene and to meet Margaret and Voiray. Immediately, Price was struck by Margaret, finally able to see what everyone had meant when they had called her a strong character. Price described her as a very striking personality with dignified, magnetic eyes. Voiray, on the other hand, seemed quite quiet and shy, though intelligent. Luckily, she seemed pleased with the camera that Price had bought her from London and everyone sat together at the kitchen table, lit by a dim paraffin lamp, whilst they went through the Jeff backstory once more. This time, Price was able to ask Margaret and Voiray for their input as they made their way through the tale. Margaret said that she didn't agree with James that Jeff had gone missing at all. She thought that he was still on the farm, just keeping himself to himself and watching on silently. A couple of weeks earlier, a saucepan of water had fallen off the stove by itself and she was sure that Jeff had been the offender. At one point in the evening, Margaret did make an effort to summon Jeff to the meeting by suggesting that he was being impolite, ignoring their guests who had come all the way from London to see him. But only silence followed. Taking the initiative, Price himself called out next, asking Jeff for a small sign that he might have been there. A few words, a laugh, or even a tap on the walls would do. But likewise, his pleas were met with silence. By now, it was already nearing midnight, and so Price and Lambert agreed to meet James and Voiray the next day for a tour of the island, and then they said their goodbyes and headed back down to the Waterfall Inn, where they discussed all that they had seen so far, finding the performances from the Irvings to be something quite spectacular and quite unsure about the realities of Jeff. The next day, Price and Lambert met with James and Voiray and they set off to motor around the island and take in some of the more infamous beauty spots. The whole day had actually been intended as a ruse to drag Voiray away from James and Margaret, who they had thought had seemed somewhat overbearing, in order to question her more privately about Jeff. James, on the other hand, had other ideas and insisted that he attend the outing. Price's intuition about the good summer weather had paid off and the group spent a sunny day cruising around the island by car before returning to Glen May in the late afternoon and made the long trek up the hillside towards the farmhouse. In the light of the late summer afternoon, they took another tour of the house, with James introducing them to all of Jeff's little nooks and crannies where he liked to hide, before settling down to tea. After dinner, the farmhouse remained quiet, and with no sign of Jeff once again, Price took it upon himself to snip some of the Irving dog's hair, named Mona, in order to compare to the supposed clippings of Jeff's hair that he still had back in London. As midnight rolled around once more, Price and Lambert left the farm again with a heavy weight of disappointment hanging over their heads. The next afternoon, the two investigators travelled back to Douglas, boarded a boat for Liverpool and made their way back to London, their trip more or less a complete dud. As might have been expected, Jeff did finally return to the farmhouse. In fact, he returned almost the very moment Price and Lambert stepped foot aboard the boat off the island, announcing himself to the Irvings by shouting into the farmhouse, Well, I've come back! James wrote to Price a few days after they had left to fill them in on the details, insisting that he and Margaret had scolded Jeff heavily for running away from the farm in order to avoid Price's visit, 
Jeff went on to explain that as Margaret had suggested, he had been on the farm. In fact, he had sat above his sanctum and watched Price take photos of it with his camera. But he chose not to make himself known during Price's visit, not due to the presence of Price himself, but that of Lambert, who Jeff had said he had known was a doubter. In an effort to make amends, the tricky little mongoose agreed to make imprints of his feet for Price. And so James asked the investigator to send over some plasticine in order to make the casts. At first, the material was too hard, and James was forced to soften it with Vaseline before leaving them in his sanctum for Jeff to work on overnight in his own time. The next morning, Jeff told James that he had put his foot in it and given it a twist, but the stuff was hard as hell. He had, however, managed to make several casts, three of his feet and one of his teeth. When the small plasticine bricks arrived back in London, Price sent photographs of them to Mr Pocock, a zoologist working in the zoological department in the British Museum, who wrote back to Price with what even the most ardent believers would have to admit was a pretty damning analysis. Dear Sir, A. This does not represent the footprint of any mammal known to me, except possibly a raccoon or American animal. B. Has no connection with A. Conceivably, it was made by a dog. There is no other British mammal that could have done it. C. Has no possible connection with B. There is no mammal in which there is such a disparity in the size of the fore and hind foot. D. This does not appear to me to represent tooth marks. Finally, I must add that I do not believe these photographs represent foot tracks at all. Most certainly, none of them was made by a mongoose. At the same time, the clippings of Mona's fur were sent to Martin Duncan, who had made the analysis of the fur clippings before, and he confirmed that they matched perfectly with those from Mona, calling them absolutely identical. Meanwhile, whilst all this was going on, Voiray doubled down in her efforts to capture Jeff with her new camera. When she sent the photos to London, Jeff was described as looking like a piece of rock stuck on top of a sod hedge. Whilst in other photos, he just didn't seem present at all. By now, it would be safe to say that Harry Price was a pretty strong doubter of Jeff, and Lambert was more or less in agreement. On the 11th of September, an account of their visit to Dawlish Cashin in pursuit of Jeff was published in the Listener magazine, and if Jeff had not been keen on Price and Lambert beforehand, he was certain to hate them after. James too took a disliking to both men, claiming that the article had been written in a mocking manner, and shortly after, their communication soured and eventually petered out almost entirely. Despite James's insistence that they no longer receive visitors to the farm, and a growing dislike towards psychical investigators in general, Dawlish Cashin did see several more researchers spend time at the farmhouse, and Price was well positioned in the community to access Jeff's romping around, at least by proxy, allowing him to continue pondering the bizarre case. Such was the case when Nora Nichols visited the farm shortly after. Nora Nichols's mother had died when she was only a young child. Raised in Hastings in the southeast of England by her father, a medical doctor, she was well-educated, attending a private girls' college with her two sisters. By the mid-1930s, she was working as the publicity manager for Methuen Publishing, a publishing house of some repute, having the likes of Henry James and T.S. Eliot on their books, and would go on to publish the English editions of Tintin in 1937. Outside of publishing, Nora had a keen interest in the supernormal, and been a good friend and associate of Harry Price at his psychical laboratory. In February of 1936, five months after Price's anticlimactic visit, Nora was in touch with James Irving, planning her very own trip to the Isle of Man. 
in order to conceal her relationship with Price, Nora used her maiden name, Kuhane, in all her communications and was forced to insist several times that she did not know Price personally before James agreed for her to visit. Falsely winning his trust, Nora arrived at the Waterfall Inn during the early evening and decided to spend the first afternoon asking around a few of the locals to see what they had thought of Jeff. It had been commented before by Price that everyone on the island seemed to have their own story about the mongoose, despite the opinion being fairly well split between incredulous non-believers who thought the whole thing ridiculous and the more superstitious folk who were not so quick to write off matters based solely on what they could or could not see. Nora quickly came to the conclusion that much of the local scepticism around Jeff was somewhat superficial, something like a facade to show the outsiders that they weren't simple rural bumpkins, when in truth, many of the people she spoke to were not particularly interested in walking up to the farm at night, avoiding it after dark whenever possible. After talking to the locals over a drink or two, Nora then set out towards the farm, torch in hand, casting a dim light over the difficult path up the hillside. Fortunately, James had apparently been made aware of her arrival by little else than Margaret's intuition and had been waiting for her at the foot of the hill, and under his guidance, the two made their way up to the farmhouse. As they got to the top of the hill, James inquired further to Nora's background, probing into her social circles in London and asking whether or not she had been a spiritualist. Quite rightly, he still suspected that she had been concealing links to Price, but Nora continued to deny any such alliance. A deception that became abundantly clear was wholly necessary if she had wanted to have any chance of meeting Jeff, as James then went on to tell her all about his disappointment with the article that Price had published in the Listener magazine after his visit. He said that he had felt that the photos of his family had not been particularly flattering, and that the tone of the whole piece had been fairly well condescending, which, given Price's tendency to have one eye on the libel laws when writing on cases he felt were fraudulent, and his disappointing visit to Dawlish Cashin in the summer, James's feelings on the article were probably not too far off the mark. Regardless, Nora managed to dodge James's suspicion well enough, and despite his disgruntled attitude towards Price, she found him to be a very friendly man, with a distinct cultured manner that she assumed had been a product of his days as an international businessman back in Liverpool. It was an impression duplicated when she met with Voiray and Margaret upon their arrival at the farm. Of Voiray, she wrote of her as a handsome girl with a nice robust figure, red cheeks and greenish eyes, Celtic in appearance. I found her agreeable and attractive and she smiled a lot at me. She did not talk unless I addressed her directly when she answered very simply and honestly. I can't believe she is party to any trick. Like many others, she found Margaret a fascinating, if not somehow dominating, character. Mrs Irving, beggar's description. She was perfectly courteous and indeed a charming hostess in a, digif- in a dignified and somewhat aloof way, insisted on making me tea and boiling a new laid egg for me, which was delicious. But her appearance, though strikingly handsome, is alarming. I have never before seen such eyes. This was a description that was perhaps somewhat influenced by the recent knowledge that she had gained that James had met her at the bottom of the footpath to the farm based on nothing other than her intuition. Several other psychical researchers who had made trips to the farm had suggested quietly that they believed Margaret to have had some sort of psychic or mediumistic ability and several locals had given testimonies that they believed her a witch. Even Jeff had been known to refer to Margaret as the witch woman though whether that was meant as literal or just another typical piece of Jeff banter is anyone's guess. 
Once they settled in for the evening, the Irvins regaled Nora with the long story of Jeff's antics. But like with so many researchers before, the night ended in disappointment, when after several hours, Jeff made no appearance at all. During their time talking, however, Nora did learn a thing or two about Jeff and the Irvings. Recently, Jeff appeared to have developed his psychic abilities somewhat. Now, he was able to discern the location of lost items around the farm for James and Margaret, and he also told Margaret what James was doing in neighbouring fields whilst the two were at home in the farmhouse. She also discovered that James was becoming desperate to leave the island, but felt he could not, so worried was he of what would become of Jeff if they were to leave, who he was now endearingly referring to as his lordship. Predictably, after Nora had thanked the Irvings for their hospitality and made her way back down to the Waterfall Inn and back to England, James wrote to her to tell her all about Jeff's return to the farmhouse four days later. Just after we'd all gone to bed and extinguished the light, he made it known that he had returned by a series of loud knocks on the matchboarded ceiling in the bedroom and an outburst of laughter of a most disagreeable kind. And then he spoke. My wife and I were much too angry to speak, as we were disappointed that he did not give you some evidence of existence while you were here. However, I asked, why did you not speak to Miss Kohani? He answered, I thought she might be a newspaper woman. Despite Jeff's apparent dislike for publicity, psychical researchers and journalists, that summer, the farmhouse still managed to host two guests that fall precisely into those categories. Charles Hicks was a keen spiritualist and journalist for The Two Worlds, a British spiritualist journal founded in 1888 that had had a central role in propagating active spiritualism throughout the country, listing upcoming spiritualist services and documenting the doings of local spiritualist circles, marketing itself as the people's popular penny spiritualist paper. Hicks wrote up a report of his visit to the farmhouse that was published in The Two Worlds in July of 1936. Curiously, one of his first observations concerning the Irvings was their lack of knowledge concerning spiritualism generally, and perhaps, given James's explanation that he had no knowledge of spiritualism, occultism or any other isms, one might suggest that he had a sceptical outlook on such matters. Though it should also be noted that Price felt the opposite and concluded that James Irving was, if not a practising spiritualist himself, at least conversant with spiritualism and its jargon. Whatever his viewpoints on spiritualism, as an organised religion, it seems that spiritualists themselves had always been welcome to Dawlish Cashin. But just like the journalists and researchers that had come before them, they would not always be entertained by Jeff. Upon Hicks's arrival to the farm, Jeff welcomed him with a tuft of his hair, much like the one sent to Price. Placing a pair of scissors in Jeff's sanctum, Hicks and James then went to the Waterfall Inn, before returning later that evening where Mrs Irving asked Jeff if he had cut his fur yet. Go and find out, replied Jeff. And so Hicks marched up the stairs and checked the sanctum, only to find a neat clipping lying in the centre. Unlike Price, it seems Hicks was far less interested in verifying its provenance. Though he did mention taking a clipping from the dog, which he said that he intended to test it against, little else was mentioned about it in his report. That evening, he sat with the Irvings discussing Jeff, and though no sight or sound was heard from the mongoose, he described the farmhouse as having an atmosphere that had somehow managed to drain him both physically and mentally, giving him a feeling that he described as being sucked dry like a sponge. On the farm at the same time as Hicks was another spiritualist, the very curious and eccentric character of Rollo Ahmed. One of the more prominent spiritualists between the wars, 
Rollo Ahmed was a man of much mystery with a rather carefully crafted persona. Part of this was his claim to have been an Egyptian, despite the fact that he was born in British Guyana. This small fudging was likely intended to give him an easily digestible mystical air, given the myths and legends that were so fashionable at the time as a result of the Egyptomania craze that had exploded after the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1922. Known as a practitioner of voodoo, the occult and yoga, there wasn't much about Ahmed that wasn't exotic, including his dress of white robes and a red fez which he wore about his house in London. In 1936, Ahmed had just published a book all about the dark arts, conveniently titled The Black Art, which was a purported history of occultism and black magic around the world, though in reality it was a Eurocentric fiction of the many barbarous people that spent their nights sacrificing animals, drinking blood, eating one another and shapeshifting into various animals. A choice quote from the book shows this very well concerning voodoo and its practitioners. They all joined hands and danced around the altar, and as the dances grew wilder, the victims were killed and pieces of the quivering flesh given to each of the celebrants to eat, which spurred them on to greater delirium. Friends with Alistair Crowley, speaker on the esoteric lecture circuit, member of a Golden Dawn Lodge, husband of a spiritualist medium, and twice convicted of fraud after he had conned people out of money under the guise that he was casting helpful spells and charms of protection, Rollo Ahmed was certainly one of Jeff's more interesting visitors. Ahmed had been visiting the Isle of Man around the same time as Hicks, purely by coincidence. He had been studying the history of Manx folklore and sorcery and naturally found it impossible to ignore the draw of the Dolby spook. His presence at the Isle's annual Tinwald Day, a thousand-year-old national holiday, was reported on by the Isle of Man Times, with his description showing just how much of a stir the esoteric magician's presence on the island had caused. A picturesque figure whose dark skin and black beard attracted much attention was Mr Rollo Ahmed, who specialises in the study of witchcraft and magic and has written a book called The Black Art. Mr Ahmed is an Egyptian but spent most of his childhood in the West Indies. He has studied magic in South America, Burma, Asia and elsewhere and with his English wife contributes to magazines in Europe and America. He speaks English excellently and is obviously a man of education and erudition. During his initial trip up to the farmhouse, Ahmed had sat cross-legged in the centre of the living room and burnt incense in an attempt to conjure Jeff into the room. But after some time and no sign of the mongoose, he had resigned in defeat. As usual, Jeff had seemingly gone on another sojourn, returning only after both Hicks and Ahmed had left the island. Two weeks later, storming round the house, thumping on the floors, walls and ceilings and laughing maniacally. It was such a shame too. Ahmed had told the press with such confidence that he was sure that he could solve the mystery of the Dolby spook. But in the end, even his black magic had done no good. Hicks, on the other hand, blamed Ahmed for Jeff's no-show. Jeff had apparently stipulated ahead of time that Ahmed should make no attempt at any Hindu magic, which for some fairly strange reason included sitting on the floor cross-legged. Ahmed, taking objection to the Two Worlds article, wrote into the journal to explain his side of the story, stating that he had been told by James and Margaret that Jeff had chosen not to appear due to a clash between himself and Hicks, suggesting that the two men had had something of a falling out during their time on the island, even before they had visited the farmhouse. The remainder of Ahmed's letter felt something like a tactful declaration of scepticism concerning Jeff and the Irvings, 
which is fairly surprising, given the author. For much of 1936, Foyre had been trying to gain a decent snap of Jeff. But time and time again, through either camera malfunction, Foyre's lack of expertise or Jeff's tomfoolery, the pictures were nothing but blurry messes, or empty landscapes of the surrounds of Dawlish Cashin and its bleak existence on the lonely hillside. Finally, by the end of the year, Foyre had caught a clean photograph of Jeff, perched atop a gate 300 yards from the farmhouse. Prior to the photograph, James had fitted a small plank to the top bar of the wooden gate in the hopes that it would make it easier for Jeff to perch upon, and his handiwork had seemingly done the trick. The image, tilted to one side and depicting a furry, cat-like creature, is far from conclusive, and many people have interpreted it as anything from a fur collar to a human face over the years. One man, who thought they possibly did show a mongoose, however, was the psychical researcher Nandor Fodor, who described the photos as distinct enough to show a small animal very much like a mongoose. By 1937, Nandor Fodor was a well-known name within the psychical research community, holding the role as the London's correspondent for the American Society for Psychical Research, whose journal he frequently published articles for concerning matters within Britain and Europe. Fodor had been introduced to the story of Jeff by Charles Northwood, a long-time friend of the Irvings and godfather to Roy Ray. After hearing about Jeff himself in 1931, Northwood had travelled to the Isle of Man to meet the mongoose and to see what was happening with the Irvings, only to come away a firm believer after he had heard Jeff talk from behind the wooden panelling of the house whilst Foyray and James had been sitting at the table with him and Margaret away in Peel. Following on from Northwood's introductions, Fodor communicated with James for almost two years before taking the trip out to the Isle of Man for himself. At first, James had refused Fodor's request to visit outright, due to Jeff's lack of interest in meeting with researchers and journalists in the past. But with Fodor pressing on undeterred, James eventually relented and invited him out to the farm, with the initial warning that he should be prepared to be disappointed, as Jeff had a habit of no-shows when it came to meeting with visitors. Having booked a solid week on the island, staying at the farmhouse with the Irvings, who had charged him the sum of £5 total for food and board, Fodor intended to learn as much about Jeff as he could whether it be from Jeff himself or from the locals, who he planned to interview extensively. Packing his camera and typewriter, Fodor made for the island, arriving on the 1st of February 1937. In an effort to butter up Jeff, he placed a gift of chocolates and a ping-pong ball in his sanctum before settling down to hear the customary, hours-long backstory of Jeff on the farm that the Irvings regaled to every visitor, going into such minute details that he learned that though Jeff had lately been lazy with catching rabbits, he had, to date, caught and killed 244, which the Irvings had either eaten or sold in the local village. That night, after he made up his makeshift bed in the parlour, Fodor took a tour of the house and detailed all of the cracks and spy holes in the wooden panelling, concluding that the farmhouse was an almost ideal place to live for a small animal. Remembering many of the details from Dennis's trip to the farmhouse, Fodor took his chance to double-check several of them, he examined the lock on Voyre's bedroom door, which had closed on Voyre on its own back when Jeff was running rampant through the house, to ensure that this testimony rang true. He could not shut himself in, nor could he escape the room after he had James lock the door from the outside. That night, as he drifted off to sleep, he heard a small rustling sound from the dining room, next door to the parlour, and wondered if it might have been Jeff rummaging around for some food, or if it had simply been the wind. 
The rest of the night remained quiet, and disappointingly, the next morning, Fodor found that his gifts had gone entirely untouched in Jeff's sanctum. Endeavouring to make the most of his time on the island and venturing into nearby Peel, he examined several of the locals who had had their own interactions with Jeff that Norfolk had previously put him in touch with. Among the witnesses that he interviewed over the week were two teenagers from Peel, 19-year-old Harry Hall and his 15-year-old cousin, Will Cubbon, who had ventured up to the farmhouse after the early rumours of the Dolby spook had begun to reach the nearby town. Harry told Fodor all about playing the coin toss trick with Jeff, who guessed the correct side of the coin three times in a row, even realising on the third go that Harry had not actually tossed the coin at all in an attempt to catch the mongoose now. The youngest, Will, gave the more entertaining story of the two boys. I threw a rubber ball into the loft through a hole in the ceiling. As soon as I stepped out of the room, the ball was thrown back. When I came downstairs, Jeff spat upon my back. I heard him spitting. It was a tiny squirt. There was no one behind me. He asked me, Can you drive a steamroller? I said, Yes. He did not believe. You, young bugger, you would put it over the hedge, he told us. Clear to hell. Several times, he said, I'll wet on your head. A postal clerk from Peel, named John Moore, also gave Fodor his own testimony. Moore had visited the farm back in 1932 and heard a series of loud bangs and thumps while sitting at a table with Voiray and James, Margaret being absent visiting Peel. Gradually, Jeff began to speak, but Moore found the words a garbled mess too difficult to understand. He described Jeff's speech to Fodor. Very high-pitched. The first words were hard to understand, but once I got used to it, I could follow every word. I would say that the voice is a full octave higher than the human voice. There is no doubt in my mind that I heard Jeff. He did not use very nice language. Put the bloody gramophone on is a fair example of his choice bits. In Peel, Fodor also met a motor mechanic named John Cowley, who had once tried to set up an electric trap underneath a bus that Jeff was known to hitch a ride on in order to steal sandwiches from the bus company's staff waiting room. The trap failed to catch anything. In truth, it never stood a chance, as Jeff seemingly knew all about it in the first place. Cowley also mentioned how Jeff would tell James all about the local gossip and how he even seemed to see inside people's homes. This animal, or whatever it is, knows a darn sight too much. He seems to hear what we talk about in the bus shed behind closed doors in the early morning hours when no one is about. I can imagine a rat hiding under the floor of the waiting room, but I can't see how a rat could tell Mr Irving, whose coming we used to dread. He made us uncomfortable by telling us every ridiculous thing that we'd been doing, as for instance, heating plugs over the stove in the office, etc. Moreover, Mr Irving gave me a perfect description of the inside of my house. He never came to see me, and I've never been to Dawlish Cashin. He said Jeff told him. It's damn strange. Whilst Fodor was on the island, he also decided to check out a story he had heard from James that had taken place towards the end of 1936. In one of his little excursions, Jeff had apparently visited a large manor house 20 miles away on the north side of the island, which had belonged to the Ballamore estate. When he returned to the farmhouse, Jeff gave James a full rundown of the large house, including descriptions of not only its gardens, but he went into fine detail concerning elements of its interior design too. None of the Irvings had ever visited the estate, and so Fodor felt that if he could confirm some of the details, it might represent strong evidence for the case of Jeff's outings. After liaising with Mrs Ward and Mr Berry, the owners, Fodor hired a car and drove Voiray and James out to the house, where upon their arrival, they found the large black gates, flanked on either side with brick pillars 
topped with two large lion statues, just as Jeff had described. More impressively, details like the description of the fireplace, which Mrs Ward had not even been aware of herself, were found to be correct. In total, of 30 distinct observations that Jeff had relayed to James, 20 had been correct, 7 partially correct, with only the remaining 3 being wrong. Fodor had been greatly impressed by this, and he was left convinced that Jeff had travelled to Ballamore at some point, just like he had said. Despite spending a full week in the farmhouse, the only experiences of Jeff that Fodor was able to obtain were these that were given to him by the witnesses. As Jeff, just like James had warned Fodor before his arrival, remained quiet the entire time. The only disturbance Fodor witnessed himself was a bang on the roof of the outhouse when he had been using the toilet one night, a little trick which Jeff had been known to have carried out in the past. Before leaving for England, Fodor drafted a letter which he addressed to Jeff and handed it over to James and asked him to pass it on to the mongoose whenever he next returned. Dear Jeff, I am very disappointed that you did not speak to me during the whole week which I spent here. I came from a long way and took a lot of trouble in collecting all your clever sayings, and I shall lecture about you at my institute where people are extremely interested in your doings. I hope that you will be kind and generous. I believe you to be a very good and very generous mongoose. I bought you chocolates and biscuits, and I would have been very happy if you would have done something for me. I am going away deeply disappointed. I am afraid Jim and Maggie will be rude to you when you turn up. Nor will Voiray think very kindly of your deserting them. Will you send me a message, or will you write a letter to me? I should be very pleased if you gave a definite promise that you would speak to me. I would come again in the summer. Congratulations on Ballamore. You scored there, Jeff. With best wishes, your friend. Fodor also set up a rather rickety contraption before his leaving, with which he hoped they might be able to convince Jeff to capture a photo of himself. Rigging a camera with a flashbulb and the set of kitchen scales left in Jeff's sanctum, attached to the shutter with a piece of flex, the plan was to have Jeff walk on the scales, tripping the shutter, and so that the camera would capture Jeff square in the frame. Fodor left James with instructions on how best to set up and work the contraption, and then, with assurances that he would keep in contact, Fodor left the island and returned to England as just one more researcher who had gone empty-handed. Characteristically, James wrote Fodor a letter two weeks later, letting him know that Jeff had returned to the farmhouse after his departure and explained that he had been put off by the constant clacking of Fodor's typewriter, which he had taken to be the tool of a journalist. He also remarked that Jeff had been suspicious of the camera contraption, asking James what he was up to. Over the following weeks, James tried several times to have Jeff trip the shutter, but in every case, some problem, either with the rigging or with Jeff's ability as a cameraman, preventing any useful photos ever being taken. Despite the disappointing visit and the predictability of Jeff's return just after the researcher's departure, Fodor was left feeling that he was in no doubt that there was a great mystery going on at Dawlish Cashin. Though his conclusions are somewhat vague, noting only that he was sure Jeff was not any type of ghost, poltergeist or familiar. Do I believe him? The question puts me on the spot. I have examined the evidence. I have tried all possible solutions I could think of. None of them answers the case. All the evidence is in favour of Jeff being a talking animal. I cannot prove he is an animal. I have not seen him. He did not talk to me. He claimed to be an animal. I cannot disprove that claim. Meanwhile, whilst Fodor had been gearing up for his visit to the Isle of Man, a rather strange court case had been brewing back in England, 
involving Price's friend and fellow Jeff visitor, Richard Lambert. Following the publication of his book on Jeff, co-authored with Price, the editor found himself coming under a certain degree of fire for his association with the talking mongoose. Perhaps unsurprisingly, there were those who found the whole affair quite ridiculous, including the rather snooty ex-civil servant Cecil Leviter. Leviter had at one time been the chairman for the London City Council, and later he found himself along with his wife, Florence Woodruff, sitting alongside Lambert on the board of the British Film Institute, where the pair took a disliking to his rather interesting views on the occult and the supernormal. Lambert's book became the final nail in the coffin, and the pair reported Lambert to the assistant controller of the BBC, William Gladstone Murray, suggesting that he was unfit to serve on the board, citing his esoteric interests as evidence to prove him mentally unsound. Lambert countered the attack and filed for a case of defamation, which led to a court case opening at the King's Bench Division at the Royal Courts in London on the 4th of November 1936 that sent talk of Jeff all the way up to the highest office in the country. During the trial, Lambert accused Leviter of having told the BBC assistant director that Lambert had fallen under the spell of Harry Price, and that he had a keen interest and belief in the occult, and that he had apparently moved house three times because of pursuit by the evil eye. All of this led Leviter to allegedly accuse Lambert of being a person of unstable mind who suffered from illusions and whose judgment and critical faculty were not to be relied upon, that he was unfair, unjust and vindictive towards his colleagues and subordinates and was a liar and unfit to be employed in any responsible position, though all of this he denied in court. During the trial, it came to light that Lambert had, at some point in the past, taken objection towards the business dealings of one Mr Brown, another member of the BFI board, who seemed to have great support from Leviter and his wife. It was at this point that Lambert accused Leviter and his wife of generating a bitter dislike towards him, which he believed led to their slanderous accusations of him, all being an effort to conspire against him out of retaliation. When questioned about his belief of Jeff, Lambert admitted that he had contributed three chapters to Price's book on the case, though when he was asked straight if he believed in Jeff, he repeated several times that he did not, and whilst the book had taken the matter seriously, he had only written on matters of speculation. When he was questioned on his discussion with Leviter about the case, Lambert said that they discussed only how the fraud had been committed by the Irvings, rather than any debate as to the actual truth of the story. In his defence, Leviter, however, suggested otherwise, saying that when Lambert had talked to him about Jeff, he had taken the case very seriously, and believing that James Irving had not profited from the story of Jeff, he seemed to have held a belief in the mongoose. As one can imagine, there was a good deal of sniggering and stifled laughter coming from the audience at the proceedings every time Jeff the Talking Mongoose was mentioned by any of the participants. This was shut down by the judge at first, but eventually even he could not contain himself, posing several questions that elicited a good deal of laughter, specifically when he asked Lambert if Mongoose on the Isle of Man had tails, to which the counsel for the defence held up a copy of Price and Lambert's book and pointing to the illustration of Jeff on the front cover said, your lordship will see from the illustration on the outside cover, inspired by Mr Price or this gentleman, that this mongoose has a bushier tail than is usual. This was all after the judge and the council had held a short debate on the plural for mongoose, concluding that they should proceed with mongooses and mongai. Probably the most interesting line from the trial was when Lambert was questioned on his involvement with Price's book, where he admitted that they had had to be very careful about what they wrote due to a fear of being accused of libel. 
When the case eventually wrapped up after three days, Lambert was awarded damages of £7,500, with the jury clearly happy that Lambert was not crazy and that Leviter had insisted as such. Perhaps more interesting than this court case, however, was the far-reaching fallout. Following the resolution, the BBC enforced a ban on the term talking mongoose, fearing that it may cause the organisation embarrassment. Shortly after, a governmental inquiry into the BBC concerning the Lambert and Leviter case was proposed and initiated via the British Parliament. The story of Jeff had finally managed to make its way all the way to the office of the Prime Minister, where he was tasked with seriously debating a matter at the BBC in relation to the talking mongoose. Having reached the highest office in the land, the story of Jeff did slowly begin to fade away. James Irving travelled to Sheffield in 1938 to give a talk on Jeff to a private audience with proceeds donated to charity, but little was written on the matter. The following year, Voiray left the farm and took work as a maid for an elderly blind woman before leaving and gaining employment in an engineering factory, manufacturing landing gears for British Royal Air Force planes. Just as Voiray had appeared to move on, so too had the public, as the newspapers turned instead to stories concerning the war across Europe. During the same period, James Irving fell gravely ill, finding himself bedridden for a full 12 months before his eventual death in August of 1945, aged 72 years old. Three months later, Margaret sold the farm at Dawlish Cashin for £140 to a local farmer from Glen May named Robert Cubbon and moved to a small cottage nearby to Peel, where she died 15 years later. Robert Cubbon's ownership of Dawlish Cashin lasted little more than a year before he sold it on to a retired English Army lieutenant named Leslie Graham, who gave Jeff a brief revival in 1947 when he was pictured on the front cover of the Isle of Man Examiner holding the carcass of a dead animal that he claimed was likely to have been Jeff. Talking mongoose killed. Jeff, famous Dolby spook, is snared. Went out without a word of protest. Jeff, the Dolby spook, talking ghost animal of Dawlish Cashin near Glen May, whose phenomenal talents created a countrywide sensation a dozen years ago, has been laid at last. So believes Mr Leslie Graham, present owner of the Lonely Farmstead, who has successfully snared within ten yards of the house around which it had been roaming during the year of his occupancy, an animal of a type entirely foreign to the Isle of Man, which answers strikingly to the descriptions of the celebrated talking mongoose. Beneath the story, the paper included a photo of the dead animal taken shortly after its death, along with a second photo of Graham holding its pelt. The animal is of the weasel variety, but larger and evidently of considerable age. It is three feet long with black and yellow mottled fur and weighs five pounds and one ounce. Mr Graham says it is of a type of animal which does not move about much and has probably been around the place for many years. He is convinced it is the subject which was accredited with extraordinary ability and attracted the attention of writers and scientists. Graham said he had heard all about Jeff before he had bought the farm, but had been sceptical of his existence, though he was now of a different opinion. He had seen Jeff a couple of times around the farm, one time disappearing into a hedge and another time standing startled in the beam of his motorbike. When it had snowed that January, he said he had found footprints near the house that had large front paws. One night I set a strong snare for it, and the next morning found it had very nearly caught the animal. There were marks where it had run around in the snare, but it had been strong enough to break loose. The next night, Graham set two snares, doubling up on the strength of the trap. It was 5.30am when he was awoken by the sound of the geese going wild in the yard. 
stepping out to see what had caused the fuss, he found the animal wrapped in the trap. As soon as I went forward, it attacked ferociously. There was nothing docile about it. It snarled and spat and clawed more venomously than anything I have ever seen. I was afraid it was going to break the snares and get away, and as there seemed no chance of getting him alive as I wanted to do, I gave him a smack with a heavy stick and knocked him out. That was the end of Jeff, for I am certain it was the same animal. At any rate, he did not talk to me. I was here for four months on my own, and I could have done with someone to talk to. The newspaper tracked down Voy Ray, who was now living in Douglas on the east coast of the island, but she said that Jeff had been much smaller than the animal killed by Graham, though she did admit that he could have grown since her life that he could have grown since her time on the farm. Foyray wasn't the only doubter that the animal had been Jeff, however. Letters sent into the paper following up the story suggested that the images looked a lot like a polecat, a similarity that even Graham had conceded in the original article. Graham sold the farm by the end of the year, and the farmhouse passed through several other hands before its eventual demolition in 1971. Whether or not Graham really had killed Jeff remains a mystery but no other owners ever reported talking to animals. Foyray moved to England in 1958, moving to live near to her sister Elsie. In 1970, she gave a single interview concerning Jeff, where she admitted that she had grown to hate the mongoose for the unwanted attention that he had brought to the farmhouse. When asked for her final words on the existence of Jeff, she insisted that he had been very real. It was not a hoax, and I wish it had never happened. If my mother and I had had our way... We never would have told anybody about it, but father was sort of wrapped up in it. It was such a wonderful phenomena that he just had to tell people about it. In 1996, Voy was again approached by filmmaker Brian Catling, who had tracked her down in order to request an interview to be included in a film that he was making about Jeff. But Voy bluntly turned it down, explaining that she had put the whole affair firmly behind her when she had left the Isle of Man. Sadly, and... Perhaps it was a reflection of the bullying that she had suffered whilst at school when the original story reached the local papers. She also cited that she could not face up to the idea of people thinking of her as a weirdo. Over time, Jeff slowly faded out of the limelight. Though he has become remembered as something of a legend by those interested in the fringe or more esoteric side of history. And all of this he's done without anyone ever really seeing him and nobody really knowing what he was. Everyone who visited the Irvings gave them relatively glowing character reviews, with words like genuine, honest or sensible. Fodor, who stayed with the family for a week, mentioned that he didn't believe that they were the sort to be given to cheap tricks and not at all craving publicity. Over the many years that Jeff was actively in the news or being researched, the Irvings barely profited financially at all from his presence. Though Price did bring Voyray a reasonably expensive camera and Fodor did pay them £5 for his board, they never made any money from the newspaper articles, with James actually turning down an offer of three guineas for a photograph of Jeff that one newspaper had made on the basis that it was too cherished a memento for him. When James did give a talk on Jeff in Sheffield, the profits were given to charity. After Price published his book on Jeff, James did write to him asking for a share of the royalties, but Price only ever paid him £10, claiming that the book had not sold well and that if he were to pay James any more, the public would become suspicious of his motives and their interest in Jeff would dwindle further. Before considering what Jeff was or was not, it's worth remembering that there is a considerable pile of evidence to suggest that he did not even exist at all. 
Many of the locals had stories about Jeff, and several showed a degree of fear concerning the stories about the farm. Some even thought the Earthlings were witches. There were also those that just thought the whole thing was an elaborate fraud. At school, Voirab was bullied as people thought that it was her making the stories up. A local newspaper printed a story that suggested Voirab had been a skilled ventriloquist able to throw her voice around the farmhouse, and two locals gave a report of a visit to the farm where they had heard Voirab making bizarre noises, whilst James dramatically grabbed their arms to tell them, Listen, it's Jeff. The latter men found the whole situation so ridiculous that they could barely believe what they were seeing. In response, both James and Voirab has said that if she was so good at throwing her own voice, she would have made a fortune on the stage, rather than keeping the skill confined to a rural farmhouse. Fodor was adamant that it was not Foyray. It is sufficient to spend a day at Dawlish Cashin to know that, under their conditions of living, it would be impossible to carry on a ventriloquial imposition over a period of years. The Irvings are not stupid people. There were also several researchers who felt Jeff and James had considerable crossover in their interests, suggesting perhaps that James had a lot to do with Jeff's supposed speech. Jeff was supposedly from India, whilst James, a well-educated, travelled, relatively cultured and curious man, had books on his shelves concerning mysticism in the East. It was often James who interpreted Jeff's conversation for visitors, and it was James who kept a meticulous diary concerning Jeff's almost daily visits to the farmhouse. When researchers visited the farm, they often commented that James seemed to have a dominating effect on the conversation, and several commented that they had trouble speaking to Voiray without James controlling the narrative. Suggestions that Jeff was able to speak several languages also became confused, as it was certainly true that James also had a smattering of languages due to his work importing and exporting pianos, and thus these utterances could be attributed to him in some way. But when Fodor showed a list of Hindustani words that James had recorded Jeff as uttering to an expert, the results were unimpressive. The speech shown to me seems to represent an inarticulate childish language, showing perhaps excitement or anger. There is, according to the expert opinion of our lecturer in Hindustani, no legitimate Hindustani words among them. The words to me seem to be distorted or slangish English, perhaps containing some Yiddish, only one phrase lends itself to a forced interpretation of Sanskrit, vis-à-vis Yogi Alpha Gahati Shushu, which would mean the yogi little blames the mother-in-law. Fodor was not the only researcher to have Jeff's apparent language abilities analysed either. Several others had done the same, with similar results, though the most generous conclusions conceded that the words could have had explainable peculiarities, possibly due to them being old or ancient dialects. At the end of the day, it's also very hard to ignore the fact that, that out of all the researchers that documented their time on the farm, it was only Dennis that seemed to have successfully heard Jeff whatsoever. But if Jeff really was real, in one form or another, then what was he? Over the years, it's been suggested he was a sort of a fairy, a ghost, a poltergeist, a torpor, a familiar, a psychological projection, and just about anything else, with several including the family friend Charles Morrison, who simply believed him to be a talking flesh-and-blood animal. In his book on the case, Fodor strikes out the possibility that Jeff was a ghost, poltergeist or familiar, mainly based around the fact that he ate food and got sick, coming to a similar conclusion to Morrison. As I said in the beginning, a fantastic story presupposes a fantastic solution, and the best I can do is to say that by process of elimination, 
I think Jeff was a mongoose or a similar animal that learned to talk. There have been other remarkable creatures. The Elberfeld horses could draw cube roots and communicate thoughts by tapping with their hoofs. Dogs have been taught to read and spell. Birds can speak. Harry Price was somewhat less generous in his summary, being fairly convinced that Jeff was simply a hoax, though not one rustled up for malicious or financial gain. Of course, we cannot state publicly and in print that Irving is a fraud, but we have indicated that the affair is susceptible of a psychological explanation, and that is what I believe is the explanation. I agree that the whole family must be mixed up in it, but there still remains the question of motive. It certainly is not to draw people to Cashin's Gap, because they do their utmost to keep people away. The motive for the imposture lies much deeper than mere publicity, and that is what makes the case so interesting. Price pointed to the construction of the wood panelling that shrouded the walls of the farmhouse in order to explain much of the knocking, as well as some of the voices that seemed to change location and spring from nowhere, saying that the walls were perfect for amplifying and carrying sounds around the house, and that if someone were to speak into the cracks, they would act like a vast speaking tube with panels like drumheads. One more popular opinion is that Jeff was something of an imaginary friend for Voiray, who, living in such a desolate and isolated landscape, made up Jeff in order to keep herself entertained, and when the story blew up in the process, the Irvings were simply too embarrassed to set the story straight. Leslie Graham, who owned the farmhouse after the Irvings and claimed to have killed Jeff, suggested a similar theory in his letters to Price, though Fodor categorically denied the possibility, saying that Jeff was far too removed from many of the Irvings to have been a figment of their imagination. Jeff emerges from these narratives with a rare power of expression, a delightfully fresh perception, an acutely observing mind, and a fund of humour which none of the members of the family possessed. Fodor also pointed out that by 1937, Foyre and Margaret were seemingly sick to the teeth of Jeff, and it was only James that enjoyed his presence on the farm, saying that he was fascinated by and proud of the mystery, whilst it annoys the rest of his household. Jeff himself is little help in figuring out any truths. He told James several times that he was not a ghost, nor a spirit, and then at other times he turned around and contradicted himself entirely. He also claimed himself to be both the fifth dimension and the eighth wonder of the world, but perhaps both of those are a little too fantastical for most people's tastes. In which case, maybe we should instead believe Jeff when he said, I am just a little extra clever mongoose. If that is still not enough of a satisfactory explanation, then perhaps another of his quotes will serve as a better conclusion. Nuts. Put a sock in it. Chew coke. And that was the end of the story of the Dolby spook, Jeff the Talking Mongoose. And we shall talk a little bit about that. I suggest possibly a lot about that after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. This time of year can be a lot, and it's natural to feel some sadness or anxiety about it. But adding something new and positive to your life can counteract some of those feelings. Therapy can be a bright spot amid all of the stress and change, something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. I know that this time of year, for me specifically, I, I you know I've, I've made no secret about the fact that I've always struggled with anxiety, and um, you know Christmas for me is is always a lot of fun and I love it, but it's also you know it brings a lot of anxiety about, 
So I can I can definitely understand that feeling of you know you get to the end of the year and as much as you want Christmas because I, I I say I love my family and spending time with my family, I, I equally struggle with the knowing that it's going to be an anxious time, and in those moments, uh, you know, being able to talk that through that 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 conflict and feeling would would be I imagine a very positive thing. So yeah, if you have ever thought about starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire, you get matched with a licensed therapist, which you can switch at any time at no additional charge. So yeah, find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash darkhistories today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash darkhistories. This holiday season, you might be looking for nutritious, convenient meals to keep you energised on jam-packed days. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service, can help you fuel up fast for breakfast, lunch and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle while tackling all of your holiday to-dos. Enjoy extra convenience at any time of day with an assortment of 45-plus add-ons to suit various preferences and tastes. Choose from breakfast items like our delicious apple cinnamon pancakes, bacon and cheddar egg bites and potato bacon and egg breakfast skillet, which, when reading that, really makes me hungry. Or, for an easy wellness boost, try refreshing beverage options like cold-pressed juices, shakes and smoothies, which sounds awesome. All of that sounds awesome, to be honest. And Factor is also great in that you can rest assured that you're making a sustainable choice because they offset 100% of their delivery emissions and they source 100% renewable electricity for their production sites and offices, which is always an excellent direction to be going for any business, I think, in my opinion. Anyway, head to factormeals.com slash darkhistories50 and use code darkhistories50 to get 50% off. That's code darkhistories50 at factormeals.com slash darkhistories50 to get 50% off. That was a little bit of a complex read, so the links will also be in the show notes. So check them out for 50% off. Cheers. So, Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Yeah. Where do we begin with that story? Um, I think writing a 20,000 word uh, script on Jeff was not something I ever thought I would do, but but here we are. Um <laughs> I'm glad I did. It was a. I, I I love the story of Jeff. I always have. I I first read of it. Um, funny enough, in, in a old old magazine that was in my library when I was a kid in the eighties, and I was really chuffed because I actually managed to buy that magazine on eBay for really cheap. Actually, it was only a couple of pounds, and um, I, I used it a little bit as a source for the episode like it wasn't a super detailed article but it was cool just to have that like those kind of older like original sources to 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 draw from anyway but yeah that that's you know I've, i i i remember reading about jeff way back then and i've i've always kind of enjoyed it and thought that jeff was one of those stories that sort of i guess like always dragged me into that esoteric fortiana kind of side of things um so, you know, it, it was it was good to do a sort of episode on Jeff, actually, because I, I for a long time sort of put it off. Um, as I mentioned, I sort of felt like it's been sort of done to death and maybe I couldn't really add anything to the story. But you know what? I, now it's done. I, I'm really glad of it. So, yeah. What, what, what do you think? Personally, I, I think that 
it's really interesting, actually. I think that Jeff is a quite interesting phenomena, clearly a psychological phenomenon, but I, I do think it's a really interesting phenomena in that I think he was probably an imaginary friend that existed for everyone. Um, and, and I find this really interesting in, in that obviously one of them probably started, I think it was possibly Voy Ray sort of maybe started and sort of invented Jeff because she used to play with Jeff a lot. And say for the first two years of, of Jeff being around, he seemed to attach himself more to Voy Ray. And I sort of feel like James probably sort of latched onto it in a way. And, and Margaret's the only one I find difficult difficulty with because so when we look at Jeff we can see that um Fodor wasn't really right when he said that Jeff was too independent from the family and that he he did too many things that were too different that's not really true Jeff was really good at hunting rabbits and so was Voire uh Voire had like a particular skill at hunting rabbits it was always spoken about and so, so that that's like you know one of Jeff's main hobbies, really. Um, Foyray also did it. Uh, Jeff has shared a lot of his favourite foods were the same as Foyray's favourite foods, and Jeff had a, a an interest in mechanics and engineering that Foyray also shared. So Foyray, you know, it's kind of well commented that I think that they sort of described her as being like tomboyish in a interests back then um you know obviously that's kind of outdated now but this was in the 40s but you know um basically like th- th- she had a lot of interest like um, she was interested in the mechanics of things and and you know engineering and things like that i think one of the reasons she was so interested in the camera was just because of how it works rather than actually taking photos if you like and, and jeff sort of shows a, a curiosity that that it aligns with that so you can kind of see there like how he has elements of Foyray's personality and and you know she was a young child on a very isolated farm with her parents as company and that was it day in day out she did go to school but you know she commuted there on a bus it seemed like she didn't have a like great deal of friends at school she, the, the 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 Irvings in general were I think they struggled to make friends on the island James was quite social um and I don't think anyone disliked them, but I think they were always sort of viewed as outsiders. Um, and I think at least for a while, they were viewed of as outsiders. And, and you can imagine that affecting Voyre at school quite badly as well. So you can see why she might have done this. I mean, even just being at home and just, just giving herself something to enjoy at home. Um, I can totally see why she might have invented Jeff. Uh, it's it's harder to understand James, but I think you can still do it if we look at his case. Um, he, it, Jeff gave James a, a male presence on the farm that the farm lacked. Uh, you know, it almost gave him a son uh, type figure that he could read ghost stories to. Jeff called him Jim, and he called Jeff uh, like his lordship and all these. And, and you know, he had nicknames for Jeff. So the, the two were quite pallish and like I think he definitely sort of treated him a bit like a almost like a son. He seemed to take up a lot of his time. James almost, well, he, he became obsessed. He wrote a diary for years, like meticulously detailing Jeff's doings every day. So I think he was definitely invested in the presence of Jeff. And I think then if, depending on how deep you want to get into this, you can suggest that, you know, 
once Jeff became like famous, uh, you know, Jeff was really James's one moment of sort of success in his life. And I mean, now we're sort of getting fairly deep into like psychology and things like that. But, you know, up until this point, James had not really succeeded. You know, he had a piano business that was doing well and he was earning good money, but it collapsed by the war. He tried to open a couple of businesses afterwards and they both failed. So he moved to a farm and the farm, I suppose you wouldn't say failed, but it was hardly prosperous. You know, at one point they said that, you know, Voiray and, and Margaret didn't really have shoes. Or at least it's definitely commented that Voiray walked around barefoot quite a bit and that Margaret didn't have the proper shoes uh, to walk down to the beach. So, you know, they, they obviously were pretty hard up. They were living off not very much money. They, they used uh, the rabbits they were selling as um, almost their main income for, for quite some time. So that, that shows how much struggle they had uh, in terms of finances and things like that. So you could always suggest that, you know, Jeff, um, he didn't bring any financial sort of success to them, to, to the Irvings. They, did, they didn't really profit very much off of him. But he brought a sense of meaning and purpose to James almost, you know, in a place where he was isolated. They, he, he, he kept James contacted with the outside world. He kept James in contact with Londoners uh, coming to the farm and he meant that he was important you know he was more important than just a, a rural farmer and you know it, it gave his life sort of meaning and you know a, a sense of success uh but but then the, we're getting quite deep into psychology there that obviously is all speculation but I, but you can see it being plausible right and so I, I feel like really like jeff was basically a an a, a imaginary friend that that sort of became adopted by the whole family um and you can almost see like you know how they all just sort of adopt it at first because it's a little bit of fun and it keeps their daughter occupied and why not and then slowly but surely it becomes more and more serious and slowly but surely until you you almost believe it yourself you know it's almost like a torpor but like a metaphysical torpor in some sort of way like you know they they wield jeff into existence um by uh, you know, just treating him as if he was there, and, and all the time they treated him as if he was there, he was there. You know, uh, you know, he 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 did exist. Um, and and I think when you look at it like that as well, it also turns the story into this really what what could be a bleak situation of of a some a family not doing so well, living on a rural farm in the middle of nowhere, inventing this like mongoose to try and like gain a semblance of meaning or or fame or whatever and it, and it turns it into something that's you know quite nice and quite wholesome really there's an anecdote from one of, from Fodor's book that, that I really um like and I think demonstrates this quite well um uh, it says uh, Irving likes his early morning tea Voire is the first to get up as he is coming up the stairs Jeff ever watchful will squeal Jim, she's drinking your tea. She's tasting the butter. She's eating the biscuits. You know, it's there's something like kind of fun about that. You know, it's like that, as a family, they use Jeff to do a lot of things. They, do, they they use Jeff to play with one another and they use Jeff to insult one another, like, you know, lightly sort of like tease one another and things like that. And you, I feel like actually Jeff is like this really wholesome sort of presence in the farmhouse that 
later, Voiray went on to, you know, say that she hated and stuff because of all the unwanted attention that Jeff bought them. But I, I feel like it, for a long time, probably, he was, you know, a really positive force in the house. And I, I think it probably went wrong for Voiray when James started taking it as seriously as he did. And I think, you know, having to hold up and, and live that lie and lie to lots of people that were coming and, and not wanting those people there in the first place and having to answer lots of questions and be like cross-examined by researchers and stuff. I imagine that became quite stressful. Um, and that's probably why she learned to hate him. And, and and I think that sort of explains why, you know, at first he bought joy, but eventually it, it just sort of consumed the family. Um, and we all say all the unwanted attention. She, Voire felt that, would have felt that she'd become sort of trapped in a situation that had just sort of been blown way out of proportion. Um, so that that's my sort of opinion on what Jeff was. Um, I know there's like all sorts of opinions on, on what he he could have been. Pretty much anything from folklore, like fays, uh, you know, familiars, ghosts, poltergeists. Pretty much anything could describe Jeff. Uh, you know, there's lots of things that we could talk about. You know, like I'm not sure about like like Harry Price suggests that the walls having this wooden paneling. So the wooden paneling on the walls, it wasn't t- attached directly to the wall. It, it left a a channel between the paneling and and the wall itself. So I understand what he's saying about it being a drum and also the, almost like a speaking tube that you could talk into a crack and direct your voice somewhere, but. I'm not, it's not, you haven't got control over that. And if you bang somewhere, just because it's a, a thin membrane, it doesn't mean you, you can change that bang and make it bang the other side, like bang on the wall, on the left wall and make the sound come from the right. It's, that's not how drums work. So yeah, I'm not sure I agree so much with Price on that sort of level. But then of course, then you start questioning like, well, maybe Jeff was real. You know, maybe these things were real. But of course, I don't, I don't believe them. I mean, how do you... I, I'm less interested, to be honest, about how they they made it happen. I, I'm more interested in the, the psychology of why. Um, Say, so yeah, I think, uh, you know, Foyeray being a ventriloquist, I don't know. There is that idea. There's also, for me, an interesting thing that uh, I found that quite often when Jeff was playing up and when he did it in front of people, Margaret was supposedly out in Peel. But did anyone check that? Was Margaret just upstairs, perhaps? And, and you know, James and Voyeray had said, oh, Margaret's gone out. Maybe she was upstairs. Who knows? That's not really something that's ever discussed in any of the books. But, you know, that was that, 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 that leapt to my mind that it was remarkable how often Margaret was in Peel when Jeff was around. But I think what's surprising to me really is is when you really look at it, like the story is is, is ridiculous and that's what's sort of funny about it. Um, and, it, you know, it provides a lot of the charm as well to the story is that it's so out there and, you know, ridi- well, ridiculous in many respects. Um, and, and then that's what it say. It makes it so endearing and stuff. But I, I find what's so surprising to me about how legendary this case is, you know, how... Yeah, legendary it is, given the fact that almost nobody actually saw Jeff or 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 had any witness reports, really, outside of the family, outside of the Irvings. There were very few people that witnessed anything from Jeff. 
there was a couple of people that witnessed Jeff um, talking and they thought it was absurd and couldn't, you know, stop, had to stop themselves from laughing because it was so obviously um, Foy Ray. Um, there was other people that said the opposite and that they had like really big experiences of Jeff, like Dennis, for example. Like, um, was it Harold Dennis? Um, he, his testimony is, well, quite out there, you know. Um, but generally speaking, most people went there and saw nothing. They just got told stories of Jeff. Outside of that, all we've got is like Irving's diary, really. Um, and, and that I find... I found that surprising when I was reading up about it because I expected more first-hand accounts of Jeff. It, when in truth, there were really very few, uh, almost none outside of the family. Um, you know, maybe like two or three witnesses that actually said they heard it for themselves. Um, you know, so that that I found quite interesting. The fact that it's so legendary, but with actually so little evidence. The actual physical evidence is is completely ridiculous. That the photos are well inconclusive at best the footprints are awful um there, there are photos of the footprints i'll put them on my instagram i guess um so you can see them but there, there are photos of footprints and and they are um i mean most of them are clearly made by fingers you know people's fingers it, it's they're just they're, they're bad um but yeah having said that Maybe they, I don't know, it's difficult. You know, you can see that they were just desperately trying to prove his existence. Um, you know, did he really exist to them? I think he did, um, but just not in the traditional physical sense. I think he existed on a more uh, sort of psychological sense. But then you, we're, we're asking questions there about the, the, the matter of existence, aren't we? Um, you know, if, if you live your life, believe in something to be true then in a sense it is um and i and I, I do think that's probably where where the irvings were especially james i think maybe voyeur got tired of that um after a while but i think james did i think jeff gave james a lot of meaning and i, and I think he definitely thought he was real um but just not physically real which is quite weird isn't it one of the sort of sadder elements of this story was Voyre's opinion at the end. Um, and I, I really hope that, you know, she found peace with the story and, you know, people stopped bugging her about it as well because, you know, whether or not Jeff's real or not, let's, let's be real, right? Like, whether or not he's real or not, the story, I think, has given a lot of people a lot of happiness over the years. And so... When you view it in like that light, I think, you know, Voyre doesn't have anything to be afraid of. You know, she said she was afraid of being called a weirdo and stuff like. But I think, yeah, that's going to happen. That sort of stuff is always going to happen. But I think more than that, she, you know, the story of Jeff and the Irvings is is great. And it's, you know, I, I'll be honest, I, I you know, I've, I wrote this episode with a, there's a tone to it. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm very sceptical about Jeff's reality in it. But I love him, you know, I find his stories hilarious, all his little sayings, you know, like the fact that he like, keeps saying nuts to people and, you know, go eat coke and things like that. And, you know, all his ridiculous, one of my favourite anecdotes was when he had a cold and he was um, sitting in his sanctum and it was late at night and he was coughing and he was shouting out to James like, oh, I've got a cold, James, I'm sick. And James threw up some peppermint and then you could 
apparently like hear him scuffling around because apparently Jeff didn't have great sight um, in the dark. And, and so he was like scuffling around looking for these peppermints. And then like after a little bit of silence, he called out like, don't worry, I found him, James. <laughs> you know, I just, this is just, it's just such a nice anecdote. It, it's funny, but it's, I'm, I'm laughing. I'm not laughing at it. You know, I'm laughing with it. If, if that is right, you know, it's, I don't, I wrote, say so I wrote this, um, this story definitely with a tone, but it's, I, hopefully it isn't, doesn't come like I'm laughing at it because that's not how I feel when I say, I feel quite sad that Foyre is worried that people will think she's a weirdo because I, I think, you know, uh, there's psychological explanations for what they've done. And I think it's, you know, you can't judge that, uh, you know, why judge that anyway? You know, it seems to me like Jeff was a, was always meant to bring people joy. And I think by and large, that is what he's done over the years. So, and that I think is where we'll finish because that I think is why I'm glad that I'd done the episode on Jeff because it gave me a lot of joy to research into it and write it and I hope that you listening to it um, got you know similar joy from it as well and uh, yeah we'll leave it there so if you have anything to you'd like to get in touch with me about this um, you can do so Uh, my email is contact at darkhistories.com the website is darkhistories.com and uh, you know go on there you'll find all the ways that you can contact me like DMs through social media or like I say through that email address there is also links to everything on the website, all the uh, links to sources, all the links to uh, the Discord server, all the links to um, the ways that you can support Patreon and such. Um, obviously, if you can support, that's great. No worries if not. And that, I believe, is about that. Say one last shout out. If you do want to uh, take part in this year's Christmas campfire, get your stories to me maybe in the next couple of weeks and uh, we'll do so. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, uh, thanks very much for listening to this two-part extravaganza on Jeff. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, like I say. Um, until uh, next episode, take care, sleep tight. Mm-hmm.